Hello, hello. Welcome back to The Killer Kinds. I hope you're all doing well. I am pumped about today's case. It is a whirlwind of emotions, to say the least. And with that said, I won't give much of an intro here because we have got a lot to get into and we have our first sponsor, I'm excited to say. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the murder of Elizabeth Betsy K. Faria. After this. If you love true crime, then you'll love the podcast, Military True Crime Addict. It's a true crime podcast surrounding life events of military personnel, veterans, family members, and those associated with the military in any way. Military True Crime Addict explores a plethora of actual true crime stories that have not been reported on by the news or media. There will be detailed stories that touch on topics such as assault, harassment, abuse of power, murder, and more. This podcast provides a voice to the victims and hears their side of the story. And they raise awareness of the heinous crimes and those impacted. I promise you don't need to know anything about the military in order to enjoy this podcast. I'm already hooked and I know you will be too. So go subscribe to Military True Crime Addict wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get into today's episode. Elizabeth K. Faria, better known as Betsy, was 42 years old when she was murdered inside her own home located in Troy, Missouri on December 27, 2011. Betsy had been married a couple of times and she did have two children from one of those relationships. But then she met a man by the name of Russell Scott Faria, or Russ as everyone called him. And the two settled down together and were married for 10 years. Betsy worked part-time for a DJ company as well as for a State Farm insurance agency. She had been with State Farm for about 10 years at the time of her murder. It's not 100% clear what Russ did for work full-time, although it is known that he mainly worked from home. However, on the weekends, he worked hard flipping houses. The two had their ups and downs, but all seemed well until 2010 when Betsy was sadly diagnosed with breast cancer. Her friends and family all said that she fought very hard, but unfortunately by October 2011, Betsy's cancer had spread to her liver and it was labeled as terminal. Now, as I mentioned, the two had their ups and downs. Betsy and Russ were known to separate and get back together, and they had done this several times. There's no definitive proof to this, however, but that's what her friends and family have said, and she had been known to spend a lot of time at her mother's house. And at the time of her murder, things were pretty tense between the couple. Plus, she had just been told by her doctors that she only had a few months to live. So I'm sure the stress levels were up, and I'm sure she was trying to spend as much time as possible with other family members as well. So... On Tuesday, December 27th, 2011, Betsy went to one of her chemotherapy treatments at Alvin J. Seitman Cancer Center in St. Louis, Missouri. It's my understanding that she spent Christmas with her husband and two children that weekend and then drove up to St. Louis that Monday and returned the following day after a treatment. So on Tuesday, it was like any normal workday for Russ. He was working from home as usual. He and Betsy had been exchanging texts throughout the whole day. They even spoke on the phone a couple of times, and the two decided that Betsy would go stay with her mom for a little bit after her treatment. Now, I need to mention, 
that Betsy was unable to drive during this time. I'm guessing it's just because she was so sick. Um, so that being said, she really relied heavily on friends and family members to drive her around and to and from places that she needed to go, especially to her chemotherapy treatments. And on this particular night, Russ had plans to go to his friend's house, Michael Corbin, for a game night. This was something that Russ and his friends did every Tuesday night for years at this point. And Michael's house was located in Lake St. Louis, Missouri, and Betsy's mom didn't live far from there. So after this game night, Russ planned to just pick Betsy up from her mom's house and the two would go home from there. And this seemed to be their typical routine, um, especially on Tuesday nights. However, the plans ended up changing because one of Betsy's co-workers and friends insisted on giving Betsy a ride that day. Pam Hupp was a co-worker of Betsy's at the State Farm Insurance Office, and the two had worked together at the same place for about 10 years at this point. And Pam insisted on helping Betsy that day by giving her a ride either to the chemo treatment or at least help get her home. At first, Betsy was like, no, I'm good. Thank you. I want to go spend some time with my mom anyway, so I'll just, I'll meet up with her, but thank you. Then Pam suggested picking Betsy up at her mom's house and driving her home later that night. So Betsy gave in and that was the new plan. So Russ hung out with his friends as usual and then made it home at 9.35 p.m. He expected to see Betsy awake, just waiting on him to get home. Instead, Russ Faria found his wife dead on the living room couch. Now his immediate thoughts and on the 911 call, he mentioned that Betsy had said in the past that she might want to take her own life. That's not too far out of the realm of possibility or anything. I mean, she did have terminal cancer, so I could see where that's possible and understanding. Now, that being said, when a police arrived at the scene, it was very, very obvious that this was not suicide. Betsy had been stabbed 55 times. Y'all, she had been stabbed so severely and so many times that both of her arms were nearly severed from her body. And plus, this serrated kitchen knife that was used as the murder weapon was still lodged in her neck. Needless to say, there was no way this could be considered a suicide. Now, I don't want to judge Russ here. I'm sure he just saw blood or could tell she was dead, but turned to look away, which is likely what I would do. To be honest, I can't look at a dead animal on the side of the road, let alone a human being. So I can't, I can't really judge him there on that. And two, when authorities arrive, Russ is visibly upset and basically hysterical. He had to be escorted out of the home. And from there, police were able to close off the house and it was officially marked as a crime scene. First off, two first responders from the fire department were the first to assess Betty's body, trying to determine the time of death. And they couldn't come up with an agreement at first. One said she had been dead for about two hours. The other said 30 minutes. Then two paramedics arrived and they came to the conclusion that she had been dead for at least one to two hours at this point, based on the state of rigor mortis. Then investigators started to look around the house, and one thing that stood out was there was no sign of cleanup, right? Initially, there was no sign of blood in the sinks, no wet towels, shoe prints, nothing showing that the killer remained in the home at any length of time, initially. However, there was a random spot of blood in a separate room. 
This mark of blood was found on the light switch leading into the couple's master bedroom. And that's where police sort of started their focus of the investigation. And when they went to the couple's closet, they found a bloody set of slippers that appeared to be Russ's. And upon further investigation of Betsy's body, investigators found a bloody paw print on her leg, or what looked to be a paw print. Now, this was particularly strange because the family dog was chained up outside when investigators and everybody arrived. So, after this initial investigation, at 11 p.m., police decided to take Russ to the police station and question him about everything. The first red flag that they got was that he called saying it was a suicide, when it was clearly not, which again, I explained my thoughts about that. And then there was his behavior as well. He was very emotional and volatile to police. Again, that could be explained away by the sheer fact he just found his wife stabbed to death in their house. I mean, traumatic to say the least. So, Initially thinking this was a suicide, but now finding out it's a murder and police are questioning you, it's just a very emotional situation to say the least. But police kind of harped on that, Um, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So police first wanted to create a timeline of the events and to see just where Russ fit into the murder, if he fit anywhere at all. So first off, police know that Betsy was picked up and taken home by her friend and co-worker Pam Hupp. Betsy made two phone calls from her home at 7 p.m. The first call was to a friend of hers saying she would need to cancel some sort of tennis game the two had planned for the next day. And then the second call was placed to her daughter. Her daughter was in the process of getting a new cell phone and Betsy had to give approval to the phone company she was buying the phone from. She told her her daughter that she's on the couch and would be waiting by the phone when the company called to get her approval for the whole phone upgrade situation. You know, you know how that works. <laughs> Very nonchalant, you know, non-important calls, basically. However, Betsy ends up missing that call back from her daughter at 7.21 p.m. So within 20 minutes or so, something happened to Betsy. She missed two more phone calls at 7.26 and 7.30. Now, supposedly one of those calls or maybe even a third call from Pam Hupp was missed as well. Even though Pam had just dropped her off seemingly 30 minutes or so to an hour before. So at 6.40 a.m. the next morning, investigators show up to Pam's house to question her about the events of the previous night. Because she was the last known person to see her alive, of course. And intriguingly enough if that's even a word, just four days prior to Betsy's death, she signed over a $150,000 life insurance policy to Pam Hupp. So police were desperately needing to speak to Pam. When police arrived, it was clear she had just gotten out of the shower. Now, normally that wouldn't be important. (laughs) However, Pam tells police that she After she dropped Betsy off at her house, she came home and took a shower and then went to bed. So, that's two showers less than 12 hours apart. Red flag? Maybe. Pam said that she couldn't remember the exact time she dropped Betsy off, but she did say that she called her husband after she got home. So, police could use that to judge the time frame of when she dropped her friend off. The police asked her if she went inside the home. If so... Did she see anybody or see anybody, you know, see anything out of the ordinary? 
And Pam said no. She did not go inside the house. She just pulled into the driveway, let her out, and then she left. And here we go with the however. (laughs) Pam ended up changing her story two more times during this interview. First, it was, quote, no, I didn't go inside the house. Then she gave this story that Betsy noticed the car that Russ said he was taking that night was still in the driveway. She said he could have taken the other one, but Pam said she thought it was weird, so she wanted to walk with her friend inside the house. But then said that Betsy was feeling sick from the chemo treatment, which would make sense. And so Pam helped Betsy to the door, turned on the lights for the inside of the house, and just kind of got her settled in. She said at one point, Betsy let the dog out to the backyard, I'm sure to go use the restroom, and Pam tells police that she's inside the house for about 15 to 20 minutes. And when she left, Betsy was curling up on the couch waiting for Russ to arrive home. So that was the timeline she gave police. So when they asked about the life insurance policy, she had quite a lot to say about it. (laughs) She really went in on Betsy's husband, Russ. She said Betsy confided in her about what a terrible husband he was, how he was mean to her at all all times. He threatened her and he was always picking fights over money. Pam said he even mentioned the life insurance policy once Betsy found out her cancer was terminal. Pam said that in the entire 10 years that she's known Betsy, that she had only been around Russ three times. But in one sentence, she was saying that she witnessed him belittling Betsy and not being very nice. And then the next sentence, she would say that he was pretty nice when she was around. So a little bit of back and forth in her statement. But she said that Betsy wanted Pam to be the beneficiary because she did not trust Russ with her money. She thought that her mom wouldn't end up getting the money or that her daughters wouldn't end up getting anything. She just didn't want the family to be associated with the money because she thought that Russ would find a way to get it. Pam suggested that Betsy told her that she trusted her with the money and that she would expect her to distribute the money to her family. I'm assuming that Pam and Betsy kind of had this conversation of who exactly she wanted the money to go to when she passed away. And she trusted Pam to do that. So that's completely not out of the realm of possibility again. So it's a little odd to trust a friend with a huge amount of money like that. Like, she's putting so much trust into this friend because of how little she trusts her husband. I mean, a little odd to me. Like, why wouldn't you just give it to your mother or give it to your daughters? Her daughters were not Russ's biological children. So, you would think there's no way he could get the money, right? But, who knows? They both worked in the insurance business. So, maybe they've seen a situation like this play out like that. So, who knows? But, continuing on with the interview. So, Pam just continues to put Russ on blast, basically. And she goes on to say, there is a letter typed out on Betsy's computer stating that Russ had tried to suffocate her with a pillow in the past, and it's supposedly proof of what a horrible person Russ and the direct fears that she had of her husband. Pam said that she hadn't seen the document herself, but that Betsy had mentioned it to her. Now, Police go on to ask her why she tried calling Betsy at that 727, 726 time and if this was after she left the house. And her story changes a couple times, once again, when explaining why she called Betsy. So at first she said it was because she wasn't familiar with the drive, so she was calling to ask for directions out of 
the neighborhood. Then it was she was calling to say she found her way and all is well. No need to worry about her getting home. Then she says, <laughs> then she says she called her because the two had argued before she left, saying that Betsy wanted Pam to stay at the house with her and watch a movie until Russ got home. But Pam didn't want to do that. So she was calling to apologize. Just once again, it's like this was the night before, not like a month or a year ago. This was less than 12 hours before. And there's no reason you have forgotten what all happened or no reason at all why your story should be changing so often and at pretty significant points in the timeline. And the stories didn't change in a tiny way. These were completely different scenarios. It was just very odd. But anyway, so police did collect Pam's phone and they determined that both Pam and Betsy called Betsy's husband. And there was a voicemail left on Russ's phone where you can hear both of the women on the call. This call took place at 7.04 p.m. Pam's cell phone and the clothes she had worn when dropping Betsy off were taken for forensic evidence. So let's pause and kind of recap here for a second. So Betsy and Pam arrive at Betsy's house right around or a few minutes before 7 p.m. Betsy makes two phone calls from the house, one of which being a call to her daughter at 7.04 p.m., both Betsy and Pam call Russ from Pam's cell phone. They leave a voicemail. I'm assuming they were just letting him know they made it. And Pam says that she stays at Betsy's for 15 to 20 minutes. That's the storyline we're going with here. <laughs> then Betsy misses a phone call at 721, another at 726, and then again at 730. Two hours later, she is found stabbed to death by her husband, Russ. Okay. You with me so far? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so... Once they get all the information from Pam, they've got her estimated timeline. Now they want to talk to Russ. He tells police that he left the house at 5 p.m. after finishing up work for the day. And he tells them that he makes about four stops along the way to his friend's house for this game night. He arrives at his friend's house at 6 p.m. Those four stops consist of a stop to the gas station near his house, assuming he just got gas, then he makes another stop to get cigarettes. His third stop was a small grocery store where he picked up a bag of dog food. And then at 5.56 p.m. he stopped at an O'Fallon gas station to get two bottles of sweet tea. And then right at 6 p.m. or maybe a minute or two after he arrives to his friend's house for the game night. He says once he got there it was determined that they did not have enough players to play the game they typically played that night. So, the guys decided to smoke some marijuana and watch a couple of movies. At around 9 p.m., midway through the second movie, Russ and the guys decided to call it a night. So, at 9.09 p.m., he stopped at a nearby Arby's to pick up some food, and then he headed home. At around 9.30, Russ gets home, takes the dog food out of his car, and then minutes later, he sees his wife deceased on the living room couch. He said he immediately called 911, and that can be confirmed by the operator that he spoke to that night. And the 911 operator pointed out that he was extremely upset. It seemed to be genuine emotion. But with all of that said, investigators weren't buying it. They wanted to find a hole in his alibi, find something to show he was lying about something, anything, anything at all. So they go to each of these stops, Russ told them he went to. They found him on security footage at the first two stops. He had a receipt for the third one. 
I didn't see anything confirming he was at the fourth stop that he made, but when speaking to the guys he hung out with that night, he arrived when he said he did. He was there the entire time and then left at the exact time he told police. And then there was also the receipt from Arby's when he went showing that he was there at 9.09 p.m. But, y'all, the police still didn't believe him. They were saying that the three hours he was with his friends was time where he was unaccounted for, quote-unquote. Even though his friends confirmed he was with them, it's like they just didn't care. They were saying that they could have fully been covering for him. You know, they didn't know. Which I could get. But then the receipt from Arby's at 9.09 p.m., 25 minutes away from the couple's home, that like that should help confirm his alibi, right? Well, not according to the authorities. They continue with the idea that there is a three-hour window where he could have been committing the crime and cleaning up or whatever. So, on December 28th, the day after his wife's murder, Russ Varia was arrested And on January 4th, 2012, the same day as his wife's funeral, Russ was officially charged with the murder of Betsy Faria. He was held on a $250,000 bond that he could not make. So this meant that he had to remain in jail until his trial, which didn't take place until 2013. But the police wanted to build more of a case against Russ. Because they didn't have much to prove he was guilty of the crime. So, despite allowing the house to be used again, meaning it was no longer considered a crime scene, and Betsy's family was allowed to access the home, a.k.a. the crime scene was contaminated, investigators went to the home to spray luminol to see if there's any trace of blood. Now, if you're not familiar, luminol, traces of blood can be found even with the area being cleaned. So they go in, spray all this stuff, and then put like a, you know, like a black light basically over the whole place. And you can see if there was any trace of blood at any time. Now, investigators went into the home with a theory. They kind of had it already made up in their head. That theory was that Russ had his friends help him clean up after the murder. Because as I mentioned, there was hardly any sign of the house being cleaned. But police were thinking that the group of friends were in on the whole thing. Because they were sure Russ told them that either the life insurance policy still went to him and he deserved that money. Or he could have known about the policy being put in Pam's name and now they needed to kill her. Both horrible scenarios. So there was the alibi situation. Then there was the comments Pam made about what a horrible husband Russ was. And then there was the family dog. So, investigators were told that the dog was very aggressive. And as I mentioned, there was a bloody paw print on Betsy's leg. So, police were thinking that the dog was in the house at the time of the murder, but then casually taken out back and chained up after it was over. So, investigators were thinking that this had to have been somebody that knew the dog. Somebody that wasn't a stranger. Because their idea would have been that the dog would have been so aggressive that he would have not cooperated with whoever was trying to put him out in the backyard. All might could make sense and add up, but also all a little bit of a stretch, right? Especially for that being all you have. All you have to convict someone of murder. Not a very good case still. So police spray the lumen on the house. And it lights up like the 4th of July. There is blood on a drawer handle in the kitchen where the towels were kept. 
There was a bloody footprint leading to the backyard, and they thought they had it. They said the killer had to know where the towels were in the kitchen, therefore it had to be Russ. Now, let me stop and say, Luminol can identify blood, yes. However, that's not the only substance that will light up when Luminol is sprayed, okay? It also shows any bodily fluids. And I say that to say, this was a contaminated crime scene, y'all. Betsy's whole family had been in that house before this testing was done. So there's your first problem, okay? Second problem is when blood or whatever substance is found using this method, it has to be swabbed and sent off to confirm that it's blood. Those swabs were done. That test was ran. And it came back negative for blood. But that didn't stop investigators. They went to trial with this information saying the substance on the drawer handle and the substance leading to the back door had to be from the killer. And the reality is that cannot be confirmed. But they take this as evidence to trial. So the case goes to trial. We know where the prosecution stands. So let's talk about the defense team. So Joel Schwartz is the attorney for Russ Varia. And he has a great defense. He, This guy's awesome. He has the security footage. He has the receipts from where Russ went that night. He has the 911 call. He's got all of it, proving that Russ was exactly where he said he was that night. And there was absolutely no way his client could be out and have committed that crime. Now, not only that, Joel Swartz had one better. He had a theory as to who the actual perpetrator was. And I'm sure you can guess who it is. <laughs> Pam Hupp. However, the judge refused to allow Pamela Hupp to be presented to the jury as a secondary suspect. Meaning, they couldn't hear the inconsistencies in her story. They weren't told how the life insurance policy was just signed over to her. They weren't able to hear how she was the last person to see Betsy. Not to mention the fact that she had to have been there right at or right around the time that Betsy was killed. They didn't get to hear any of that. They didn't get to hear any of the evidence that pointed to Pam Hupp. Whether she did it or not, that evidence would have been crucial in the case against Russ. It should have been at least looked into as a possibility, but it wasn't. And I'm sure it's because nine times out of ten, it is the husband, I hate to say. <laughs> I get it. Trust me. And I would have believed it was him too, if I didn't know everything we know about Pam. Unfortunately, on November 21st, 2013, Russell Faria was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. But luckily for Russ, there was a group of people that strongly felt that he was innocent or at least not given a fair trial. That group, surprisingly, comprised of a few police officers and even a couple of jurors. And in February 2014, a local but well-known and popular newspaper called the St. Louis Post-Dispatch released some information and brought so much to light that really got people thinking that maybe Russ wasn't guilty. They released an expose after two jury members came forward and told the paper the huge concerns that they had about the case. These jurors said that they didn't feel confident in saying that Russ was guilty, but that they all just said he was based on, I guess, any other option. <laughs> there were some 
important information kept from the public and they wanted to share it. I'm assuming they had a guilty conscience. Thank the Lord they did. They spoke out about the money from the life insurance policy that they found out about and how Pam was supposed to distribute that money to Betsy's mother and daughters. But shockingly, she never did that. She had been repeatedly asked by Betsy's family for the money, but Pam was refusing to hand it over. It was to the point that Betsy's daughters had filed a lawsuit against her to get their money. Then they said more and more came out about Pam and her major inconsistencies in her story and how Pam was rarely mentioned in trial. And if Pam was brought up at all, it was just kind of brushed under the rug by the prosecutor and anybody involved. Then another bombshell they handed over was the fact that the prosecutor, Leah Askey, was dating a man by the name of Mike Lang. Who was Mike Lang, you ask? Well, he was part of the team investigating Betsy's case. He even testified against Russ at the trial while his girlfriend is the prosecutor. I mean, highly inappropriate. There's laws against stuff like that. So, regardless of the outcome, the investigation and the trial was just handled so poorly. And Betsy's case deserved a second chance at justice. And so did Russ. Thankfully, in February 2015, Joel Schwartz appealed and the Missouri Court of Appeals decided to give him a retrial. Now, oddly, the original judge assigned to the case, Chris Minemeyer, recused herself from the retrial, meaning she did not want to be a part of it. And I find that pretty odd. I don't know the reasoning behind it, but I don't like it. I don't, I don't trust that. <laughs> But luckily, in June, another judge by the name of Stephen Omer decided to take on the case, and he declared that Russ be released on bond until this retrial began. So this poor man had been in jail since 2011 up until June of 2015. It's just so sad. So let's get into this retrial for a minute. So during this trial, Pam was kept in the forefront, basically. Some Police officers came in to testify about the actions and statement made by Pamela Hupp. They even said they interviewed Pam in June 2015, I'm assuming to prepare for the second trial. And she came up with whole new bits of information. She mentioned having a sexual relationship with Betsy. No clue where that came from or how that relates to this at all. And then suddenly she remembered seeing someone that night as she was driving Betsy home. She said that this person looked like Russ parked up the road from the Faria home. But what was crazy and disgusting was that in this interview, she was seemingly fed this information by investigators in the room. They gave her their theory that it was Russ and he had had to have been close to the home waiting for Pam to leave. And that is a huge no-no. Investigators are not allowed to give their theories to any witnesses because that plants ideas into their heads. And sure enough, that's what's happened here. Pam's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I did see somebody that looks like Russ. You know, I mean, ridiculous. Then the CSI involved in the case took the stand. She stated that when she arrived on the scene and after examining the body, she saw the alleged paw print. She said she wanted to swab the dog's paws to see if any trace of blood was found on the dog. And she said she was straight up told not to do that. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, she was told to just 
take an impression of the dog's paw, and that's it. But she said she was able to look at the dog's paws, and she said to the naked eye there was no sign of blood. Now, this was a huge statement made because this was one of the biggest pieces of evidence the prosecutor put forward in the initial trial, saying the dog was aggressive and the dog had to have known the killer. But it was never proven that this was a paw print, and there was no physical evidence showing the dog was present at the murder and then casually taken outside. The second bit of information the CSI shared was that when they examined the slippers found in the couple's closet, the ones the prosecution claimed Russ had been wearing when he supposedly committed the crime, CSI determined that the blood found on the slippers was not consistent with someone wearing them, walking around, and stepping in blood. The bloodstains were on the side of the slipper, almost like they were in the vicinity of the crime, but not worn around the house during or after, which again, completely shuts down the prosecution's case. Then there was the phone records from Russ's cell phone that showed he was at his friend's house the entire night, just like he said he was. And then, (laughs) there's more, there was that letter that Pam mentioned being on Betsy's computer, mentioning the threats made by Russ. When investigators found that, it was determined that the document was on the computer. However, it appeared to have come from another program that Betsy did not have, indicating that this letter was planted there. Surprise, surprise. Never trust a typed letter. Just saying. (laughs) So with all this damaging evidence showing the initial trial was pure trash, Finally, on November 7, 2015, Russ Varia's conviction was overturned. Praise the Lord. And in July 2016, Russ filed a civil lawsuit against the prosecutor, Leah Askey, and a few others involved in his initial conviction. That lawsuit took a few years, but both sides settled in March of last year, 2020, and Russ was awarded $2 million. Now, You might think that's the end of today's story. Oh, but no, there is more. It gets even better. (laughs) So on August 16th, 2016, less than a year of Russ's overturned conviction, Pamela Hupp calls 911. Here we go. (laughs) So Pam calls 911 claiming that a man named Louis Gumpenberger was threatening her with a knife telling her to go to the bank and get Russ's money. That's quotes from her. While on the phone with 911, she said she's locked herself inside her car in her garage at her home, and he's threatening her. At some point, she manages to get out of the car and run inside her house to get her gun. It's at this point she shoots and kills Lewis. She said that she thought Russ had hired this man to get his money from Pam. However... There was a huge issue with Pam's story. The man she was claiming to have attacked her had been involved in a horrible car accident back in 2005. It left him physically and mentally impaired. There was no way he would have been capable of doing what she was trying to claim he was doing. So, what the heck is all this about, though, right? Well, come to find out, a few people in the area that Pam lived in started reporting a suspicious woman offering $1,000 to reenact a 911 call. Yeah, you heard that right. She would tell them that she's with the Dateline NBC show and she needs someone to reenact a 911 call. 
When police start looking into these reports, they pull security footage from one of the parking lots where this interaction took place, and they see Pamela Hupp's car. And they notice that people are describing what seems to be Pam Hupp. And when Lewis Guppenberger is found, he has about $900 in his pockets, and Pam has a $100 bill inside her house, basically indicating that Lewis might have been approached with the same scam that these other people were describing, and he might have taken her up on the offer. And not only was the money found in his pocket, but the knife found on him, the one Pam was trying to claim he was threatening her with, that knife was purchased from a local dollar store, along with other items found inside of Pam's home. Essentially saying she purchased a few things at the same time, including this knife. So, at this point, investigators theorized that Pam came up with this idea to try and make it seem like Russ Faria was hiring people to come after her in order to get the life insurance money. She's literally trying to get him put back in jail. On August 23, 2016, Pam was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. So, first Pam tries to commit suicide while in jail. That didn't work. Then she tries to plead not guilty. And the prosecution's like, look, we're going after the death penalty here. You tricked a mentally and physically impaired man and then you killed him. Basically saying, if you're going to trial, we're going to take you to the electric chair. Okay. So she ends up entering an Alfred guilty plea, waiving her right to a jury trial. Therefore, she did not have to face the death penalty. And to clarify, an Alfred plea, I think we've mentioned in a previous episode, basically lets the person say that they're not guilty, they don't admit guilt, but they recognize that there isn't enough evidence that would cause them to be found guilty. And guys, that's not all. While looking at Pam a little closer during the Lewis Gumpenberger case, police discovered another murder that she might have been involved in. Yeah, this this episode, this case just keeps going. <laughs> The death of her own mother is under suspicion. So, in 2013, Shirley May Newman was living alone in a third-floor apartment in the Lakeview Park Independent Senior Living Community in Fenton, Missouri. From what I understand, she was in fairly good health, but she did have signs of dementia and arthritis. So, Pam Hupp spent the night with Shirley on the night of October 29, 2013, following a hospital stay. At approximately 5 p.m. on October 30th, Pam dropped Shirley off at her apartment, instructing staff not to expect her for dinner that evening or for breakfast the following day. I don't know what reasoning she gave, but Shirley Mae Newman was found dead beneath the balcony of her home at 2.30 p.m. the next day. Her death was determined to be from an accidental fall. However, the autopsy found that she had 0.84 micrograms of the sedative Zolpidem, which is sold under the brand name Ambien, in her bloodstream. This was over eight times the normal dose, from what I understand. So, the next month, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous note suggesting that Pam Hupp was the last known person to have seen Shirley alive and the note suggested she had murdered her own mother for the life insurance. 
Pam and her siblings each received approximately $120,000 of investments held by Pam, as well as sharing a $10,000 life insurance payout. Earlier that year, prior to her mother's death, Pam had been videotaped saying, quote, My mom's worth half a million dollars that I will get when she dies. If I really wanted money, there was an easier way than trying to combat somebody that's physically stronger than me. The police reopened the investigation, obviously, but after interviewing the housekeeper who found Shirley and Shirley's son, both of them said that Shirley was unsteady, so it's possible that she just fell on her own. And that led investigators to conclude, once again, that her death was accidental. And to note, they never did actually interview Pam Hupp for the murder. As far as Betsy Faria's case goes, in January 2018, attorneys acting for Russ Faria's civil lawsuit interviewed Pam, and she declined to answer 92 questions relating to the killing of Betsy. On June 11th, Circuit Court Judge John Cunningham ruled that prosecutors in Pam's murder trial of Louis Gumpenberger could present evidence relating to Betsy's murder. In June of 2019, after Pam entered the Alford plea, attorney Mike Wood announced that he would be reopening the Betsy Faria homicide investigation. In February of this year, 2021, Fox 2 News out of St. Louis presented Mike Wood with a new lead in the case. Shortly after that, Mike Wood told Fox News, quote, We're starting to come to the point where things are going to move very, very quickly. I wouldn't be surprised if we have very significant announcements in the summer or even early fall. I'll definitely be keeping you guys posted on that. Well, that was a roller coaster of emotions, was it not? Did you suspect Pam as quickly as I did? Or did you really think Russ did it? I'd love to know. It's so crazy. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's case. So head over to the podcast Instagram page at killer.kind.pod and let me know. Now, guys, I hate to say it, but there will not be an episode two weeks from now because that is going to be Memorial Day. I had thought about trying to put something out on that Tuesday, but my husband is actually scheduled to have surgery on Friday the 28th, and he'll be in the hospital for a few days um, through the weekend and likely coming home on either that Monday or Tuesday. So with that said, I'll be back here in three weeks with the next episode. I may do a couple of polls over on the Instagram to see what case I should cover next. I know the Delphi murders have been in the news a lot because of the recent arrest in the originally unsolved murders. And the Delphi murders, if you're not familiar, is um, the murder of two girls in 2017 in Delphi, Indiana, when they went hiking or walking around in the woods, as they like to do, and they were found murdered. One of the girls had taken a photo of a man walking on a bridge near them. The person in the photo was who police suspected to be the killer. There was also an audio recording on the little girl's phone, and the only clip the police released to the public was a man being heard saying, quote, down the hill or go down the hill or something like that. It's a very disturbing case, but it has new activity. So I would love to cover it here. But with it being so popular right now, there are probably several other podcasters out there covering it too. So if you're like me and listen to multiple true crime podcasts, you've probably heard this and 
you may know the whole story and don't want me to cover it here. So totally fine. Totally understand that. So let me know your thoughts or check out the Instagram page to participate in the polls. That will be one of them um, on there. So other than that, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Please leave a review, hopefully five-star review. Leave any comments you can on wherever you're listening. And I will be back here in three weeks. Until then, I hope you all have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you again to Military True Crime Addict for sponsoring today's episode. And stay safe out there, guys. I'll see you back soon. Bye.